transition to Maine is really built for uh, more traditional age students who have strong aspirations of studying on the main campus, but for whatever reason, financial, pandemic, personal, etc., may want to start their studies online, pay that lower rate of tuition, and then enroll at the main campus when they're ready. This and more in this new episode of the ISEF podcast. Your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda. My name is Martijn van der Veen. And after our special podcast episode earlier this month, live from ISAF Berlin, we're back with our usual half-hour format that starts with a look at recent news and developments in our industry, followed by a discussion around this month's main topic, international students and online programmes in the new normal. And we'll end the episode by answering a question that we have received from our audience. As each month, I'm joined by Craig Ricks, editor of ISAP Monitor. And Craig, how was it for you to be back in Berlin? Oh, it's fantastic, Martin. I think we all felt the same. I mean, Berlin is a pretty big marker in the year for most of us. And for almost everyone that I spoke to in Berlin, certainly for me, it was my first in-person event since the start of the pandemic. So it was a... uh, it felt like a really exciting step forward, to say the least. And it almost feels like Isaac Berlin kicked off the so-called new normal. And even though opinions vary on what that new normal really is, someone even asked me this almost philosophical question. What if the new normal isn't the normal we knew? What if the new normal isn't the normal we knew? Craig, I, I think we need to let that question sink in for a moment. And to be honest, I didn't really have an answer. Mm. Someone who actually may have an answer to that, or at least have some concrete examples of a new normal in international education, is Stephanie Adamson, Assistant Dean for Global Admissions and Enrollment at the University of Arizona, and she's our guest speaker today for our main topic. But before we go to Arizona, first I'd like us to go to Australia to kick off our section news and developments. Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode, but first, a look at trends and developments in our sector. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced some highly anticipated news. From the 1st of December 2021, fully vaccinated eligible visa holders will be able to come to Australia without needing to apply for a travel exemption student cohorts as well as humanitarian temporary working holiday maker and provisional family visa holidays. I can hear sighs of major relief in the industry. Craig, we have had announcements from individual Australian states and territories in recent weeks, each with their own timelines and arrival protocols for international students. Does this government announcement overrule the individual protocols for each state? Is the country now really open? fully open to international students as long as they are vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, actually, as we receive this news today. I mean, the news is this is our first breaking news item on the on the podcast, because this news just occurred earlier today in Australia. And uh, it's been a much anticipated announcement for some time, but the timing of it was quite unclear. As you said earlier, we have seen in the last month in particular, a number of announcements from states and territories. Virtually every state and territory in Australia has announced its own student return plan, whether on a pilot stage or otherwise, in some form or another. And in fact, last week on ISAF Monitor, we had an extensive item that just 
provided a bit of a roundup of, uh, of those different guidelines for each state yeah. and territory across the country. So what's happened today is that the Prime Minister has said that fully vaccinated students, basically, if you're fully vaccinated, and you have a student visa that's valid to enter Australia, you are welcome to arrive from 1st December onwards. The significance of that is that, of course, the Australian academic year really will be getting underway in, depending on the university, depending on the institution, in February and March of 2022. And so now we're talking about a month to two months before the start of the academic year, students can begin to plan more concretely for their arrival to begin or resume their studies in Australia. There are about 150,000 students that are currently outside of the country that have valid student visas to enter Australia. And so this, for that large cohort of students, this is especially important and, and relevant news. So we will have a full update on this published on ISEF Monitor already, and uh, listeners can refer to that uh, for more detail. But to answer your more specific question, what it means is that it provides a common set of guidance for students entering the country. However, individual states and territories may still maintain their own arrival guidelines. You'll see some variability from state to state across Australia in terms of current COVID conditions, number of cases and public health measures that are in place. And so it's our expectation, the information we have from Australia today is that students arriving in Queensland and South Australia will still be required to go through a quarantine period on arrival in Australia, but otherwise in the country, the quarantine requirements will be waived. Right. Well, it's great news, of course, and I guess you're saying the right thing. People should still be vigilant whenever they're considering to study overseas or the agencies that are sending the students to be very, very up to date of the latest news about a specific destination, province, country, state, what have you. I think that's absolutely true. And we've learned anything during the pandemic. It's that, you know, public health conditions can change quickly from month to month. And so government guidance associated with that can change quickly as well. So yes, we all still have to be adaptable in our planning for study abroad and for everything else. But this is a huge step. The Australian, the national borders into Australia for foreign students and others have been closed for almost the entire period of the pandemic. So with, with rare exception. And so this is a rather monumental development in terms of reopening the country at last. Indeed it is. Another main study destination that has been suffering is the U.S. International enrollments in the in U.S. higher education in the 20-21 academic year were down by 15%. However, international enrollments this fall for the 21-22 academic year were up by 4%. Greg, would you say that this 4% is simply due to reopened borders, or can we speak of a rebound in the overall popularity of the U.S. as a study destination? I think both of those things. I think students are more obviously more prepared to travel this year. Many students would have deferred their studies from the previous academic year to this year and were anxious to return to either begin or resume their studies in the U.S. Particularly students are motivated by the opportunity to, to go for in-person study in a, in a major study destination like the U.S., and so, you know, as more institutions are returning to in-person study this year, as you say, uh, border restrictions are easing as the U.S. Is, continues to work through what was a really significant visa backlog for students that needed to acquire or renew a study visa for the U.S., we're seeing those numbers coming back up again. So, I mean, a 15% decline last year, frankly, is... I think probably a, a less of an impact than we might have anticipated in that at that point in the pandemic. You know, most of that decline was driven by a decrease in commencements in new students beginning their studies. And I think that the fact that we only, I say only in air quotes, 
only saw those numbers come down by 15% speaks to the determination of students to continue their studies in the US. And the fact that we're seeing them come up, those numbers come up again in the current academic year really says a lot about the commitment of students to follow through, the adaptability and resilience of institutions and in providing services and programs for students during these latter stages of the pandemic, and the continuing attractiveness of the US as a study destination for foreign students. So would you feel comfortable to say that that 4% increase is going to be continued in the years to come with a continued increase? I think that there is every indication that the U.S. remains, obviously, far and away, the world's leading study destination. That position has been challenged in the last several years, and, and certainly there are other destinations that have taken market share from the U.S., if we can put it that way. But I think under the current administration, Biden administration in the U.S., which has sent very strong signals to international markets around the world that the U.S. is a welcoming and safe destination for international students, the joint statements from the uh, Department of Education and Department of State to the effect that the uh, that they are working to increase their coordination uh, with respect to international education and international recruitment generally, and the fact that there are many peak bodies in the U.S. NAFSA, NACAC. Uh, English USA and others that are lining up to coordinate with the federal government around a broader recruitment strategy. I think those things all suggest that we can anticipate a more active recruitment effort on the part of U.S. institutions going forward. And if anything, that should reinforce the U.S. leadership in this uh, in the global marketplace. Well, thanks, Greg. That's, of course, uh, great news for a great study destination. And as always, for more detailed information on these and other industry-relevant topics, please visit ISAFMonitor.com. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we look at international students and online programs in the new normal. So as I quoted earlier, what if the new normal isn't the normal we knew? I would indeed say that in our industry, the new normal is indeed not the normal we knew, as we will see lots of new initiatives and new solutions that are the result of all of us having become near experts in online and digital learning during the many months of lockdown. The University of Arizona, for example, has already embraced the many new opportunities that online delivery provides to our industry post-pandemic, which brings me to our main guest for this episode, Stephanie Adamson from the University of Arizona. Stephanie. Welcome to the Eyes of Podcasting. Can I ask you for a brief introduction, please? Certainly. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm happy to join you today from Tucson, Arizona, where the main campus of the University of Arizona is located. And we also have 650 locations around the world that provide students with ultimate mobility. That's a quite impressive number. And Stephanie, although borders have reopened for most destinations and students are traveling again, the University of Arizona has actually decided to continue online delivery as an option for international and prospective students. As a start, can you maybe give us some examples of those online options? Sure. So let me just give you a little background. The University of Arizona launched some online options for international students in the spring of 2020 as a response to the pandemic with an intention of trying to help students stay on track toward the completion of their degrees. And students were able to take us up on that offer and study outside of the U.S., and then we also launched a program called Global Direct Online, which offers full degrees online to students anywhere in the world. Some of the most popular undergraduate degrees are in environmental science and electrical and computer engineering. We have a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, but students are also very interested in our Bachelors in Law, 
our human rights program and nutritional science, just as a few examples. We have 19 undergraduate degrees that we offer fully online to students outside of the US. Right, and a global direct online program, how does its pricing, for example, compare to your regular on-campus programs? Well, you know, that's a great question, thank you. So we decided when we launched this initiative that we wanted to make sure that students anywhere in the world had access to affordable, high quality education. And so we were able to leverage our existing Arizona online opportunities, but we were able to price our global direct component of those online options to the different countries around the world. So typically students would pay anywhere between $300 and $500 per credit hour to take these courses online. And how does that compare to the on-campus pricing? It's, uh, it's definitely less. The idea is that you know we wanted to be able to make our degrees affordable to students in different markets around the world. And Arizona Online was really designed for a domestic US audience. So it's priced according to the US market. Right, so it's the Global Direct Online Pathway positioned as an option for, let's say, your conventional target group of international students, or is this an approach to reach new student cohorts and new markets and with different budgets? That's another excellent question. So when we first launched this option, the idea was that it would be to help students stay on track. So it was really kind of a, a lily pad, you might think, you know, sort of a, a, a way for students to who had intended to come to the main campus to study, stay on track, and then when the pandemic conditions abated, return to the main campus in Tucson. And many students, hundreds of students, took us up on that offer. And so initially, the audience that was most interested in our online options were traditional high school students who were looking for that opportunity to stay on track. But over the last, you know, almost 18 months now, we've seen that change a little bit. And so we have more students that are applying to Global Direct Online with the intention of starting online and staying online. They want to complete the full degree online. As I mentioned, we have 19 undergraduate degrees that we offer fully online, but we also have graduate degrees and graduate certificates and undergraduate certificates. So there are definitely a number of options for students. So our demographic that we're looking at is really broad. We're looking at not only traditional high school students and undergrad students, students maybe who are actually currently in high school. We even have a high school program that we launched called U Arizona Academy that helps academically talented students while they're still in high school get ahead in their studies. They basically just get an early start on being an Arizona Wildcat. So while they're still in high school, they can already start studying at the University of Arizona through U Arizona Academy online. Correct. So just to give you kind of a quick recap, through Global Direct Online, we have a number of options for undergraduate students to study. The earliest option is the U Arizona Academy. U Arizona Academy enables academically talented high school students to take the courses in concert with the courses at their high school and get a head start on their University of Arizona degree. Some students have already transitioned to the main campus, others have transitioned to fully online studies, and others have chosen to enroll at other universities in the US or abroad. So that's one of our degree path options in Global Direct Online, and that's the youngest audience, that's for students maybe as early as their sophomore year of high school. We also have students who want to study fully online, and we've talked a little bit about those degree offerings. We have another option for more likely adult learners, and that's a degree completion program where if a person started their degree but didn't finish it, we can kind of create a bespoke general studies degree program to help them wrap up that degree, maybe with the last 60 units of the degree. We also offer undergraduate and graduate certificates. Those tend to be a little bit more appealing to an adult audience than to uh, the younger students. 
And then we have a very popular option, which we call transition to Maine. And transition to Maine is really built for uh, more traditional age students who have strong aspirations of studying on the main campus in Tucson, Arizona, but for whatever reason, financial, pandemic, personal, et cetera, may want to start their studies online, pay that lower rate of tuition, and then enroll at the main campus when they're ready. And those students can stay online typically anywhere from one to four semesters before they need to make the change to the main campus. I, I think it's all quite impressive because you're really offering a very broad portfolio of solutions that responds to the needs and demands, I guess, of various types of international students and prospective international students. What I would find interesting to understand is how many of these concepts and ideas were already created before the pandemic, or are these all the result of the learnings that we've all gathered during the pandemic? So at the University of Arizona, we've had a microcampus network for I think since around 2015, the microcampus network are really prestigious universities all around the world that, you know, through whom we offer dual degree programs. And so when the pandemic struck, we were able to use that microcampus network and our existing very highly ranked Arizona online options to sort of be a catalyst for rapid change. And so it's really those two programs that are the backbone of our microcampus network, which is again, 650 locations around the world. So the University of Arizona briefly um, also was very engaged in a strategic planning process in 2018 and 2019, where global initiatives were one of the five key pillars of the institution's strategic plan. So at that time, we were laying the foundation for some of these initiatives. For example, the high school program, we knew we wanted to launch the high school program but we didn't know how exactly we would realize that. And then of course the pandemic hit, we were all energized and really creative and looking for these types of solutions. And now here we are, something that we all thought might be a five-year plan to launch has already been in existence for three semesters. Well, I like how you're saying that the pandemic hit and we were all energized. That's not the common reaction we had to the pandemic. So it's great to see that you turned that into something really positive. An interesting question for a large part of our audience would be, what does this mean for student recruitment agencies, the agencies that you work with? Right? You have different program types, different pricing attached to that. How does that affect the relationship and business models that you have with your agency partners? It's definitely a lot for them to understand and for us to train and onboard and maintain you know, all of these different options. So we have different types of partners. We have some large scale partners, some individual agents, small agencies. So they all sort of have a niche, right? So some are really focusing more on the online options. Some are focusing more on main and some are focusing on both and really leveraging that concept of the transition to main. So for example, when we work with different partners, agents and agencies, we encourage them to promote all of the options as it makes the most sense for that individual student. Best fit is really important to us. That's a value that we have in our recruiting teams. And so we have opportunities for agents to earn a commission when a student starts online, and then another commission when the student transitions to the main campus. Uh, that's incentivized, the transition. Exactly. We do like to incentivize that transition. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. There seems to be some level of pushback amongst some, not all, conventional student recruitment agencies towards online or blended programs. Have you experienced this as well, and, and what can be done to get them on board? 
I hadn't thought of it in exactly that way until you asked, but yes, I think there has been some resistance to the online. Some of the agencies that we work with are much more interested in recruiting to the main campus or to graduate or then undergraduate or vice versa. But again, I think we're just taking kind of a layered approach to our recruiting strategies. At the University of Arizona, we spend an awful lot of time and energy doing our own marketing and our own outreach through digital strategies. So only about less than 20% of our students are sourced by agents and agencies and the rest are, are sourced alternatively. So I just think when you're trying to recruit all around the world, everywhere to all these different modalities, you just have to take a very layered approach and work with the different agencies where they have their strength, whether that is in recruiting to grad versus undergrad or online to Maine or based on geographic considerations. We just really try to tailor our approach to support them because we're all in it together. It's one big team. Well, that's very true. Right? And it's good to hear that you have a multi-channel approach, which I think is, is crucial, especially for this large variety and opportunities that you offer at the University of Arizona. Craig, the program offering of the University of Arizona, let's say the delivery of it, do you see similarities and parallels among with other institutions? Or would you agree that the University of Arizona is quite far advanced in this area? Well, I think you could probably cite examples of both types. The university is obviously very advanced in its strategy in this respect. And I think as Stephanie explains, it was on the one hand, it was uh, there was a lot of infrastructure within the institution already to support some of the delivery that, that we're talking about today. But it seems clear from what you're saying, Stephanie, that, that COVID was a, a real accelerator in that respect. And I think that, you know, obviously institutions and schools around the world had to make that same transition last year, but not all have the same commitment to continuing online or, or hybrid delivery going forward. For some institutions, I talked to a number of schools in Berlin, for example, uh, in different sectors that were, you know, more or less anticipating a return to doing things the way they had done prior to the pandemic, right? And I think that's fine. That's a totally legitimate choice. But it's also interesting to look at some of the new models that are now emerging from Arizona and otherwise around the world, where you know we're applying some of the lessons and some of the new capabilities that institutions have developed during the pandemic to reach new audiences and to create new types of program pathways for students. I think we see examples of both in the uh, programming at Arizona. And that's what makes it such an interesting example for us today. I guess there's almost a luxury problem of opportunities that exist with the new technologies and new target groups, and especially the fact that multiple students that initially weren't able to study overseas can now try a new option, which mm -hmm. is the addition model, I believe you mentioned, uh, Stephanie. How has the response been from international students thus far? Well, when we look at our fall 2021 enrollment, our undergraduate enrollment on the main campus was up 66%, and our graduate main campus enrollment was up 128%. So I think our marketing efforts and student resiliency and tenacity are, are well reflected in that. But the greatest growth that we had in enrollment at the University of Arizona this fall actually was outside of the United States. It was students taking up that offer to study online through Global Direct or at our dual degree partner locations around the world. So I think, you know, at the University of Arizona, we know that students will always want to come to the main campus. Uh, we know that we have the capability to support students who can't come to the main campus through our online and our dual degree options. But if you were to ask our vice provost for uh, global affairs and dean of global locations, Brent White, he would tell you that the future is online. And we have embraced that at the University of Arizona. We really feel like the University of Arizona has the 
capability to provide access and opportunities to basically make the world a better place through education. And um, whether that's on the main campus, whether that's outside the U.S., whether that's online, one way or another, we're, we're here for students. Wherever they are, we're here for them. I guess I'd say the future includes online. And I guess to also say that the new normal isn't the normal we knew, but is a much more exciting normal, if you can call it that. Thanks, Stephanie. I mean, these are some great initiatives, and I think it opens the door to a much larger group of young people that want to study overseas or, or get a degree from an institution overseas. Interestingly enough, the question from our industry is also very much about studying overseas or studying at an institution overseas, whilst maybe not always traveling. Join the conversation on the ISF podcast and share your industry questions with us. Just email podcast at ISF.com. Hello, my name is Diogo Rodriguez, founder and director of Yes Intercambio. I'm curious about the future of the transnational education, which is when students based in country X study for a degree from a university in a country Y, for example. Now, if a student from a country X enrolls in an online degree program from a country Y, isn't that the same as transnational education? My question is, what is the difference between transnational education and cross-border online learning? Thank you. So if a student from country X enrolls in an online degree program from country Y, isn't that the same as transnational education? What is the difference between transnational education and cross-border online learning? It's a good question, but it's a question that harks back to the nature of the term transnational education. Like, I mean, transnational education is kind of a term that we've settled on as an industry to describe a pretty broad range of activity. Basically, it refers to international delivery of education where the delivery happens partly or wholly in the student's home country and perhaps partly in a destination country, right? You know, we, we used to throw around quite a variety of terms that all kind of pointed at the same used thing. To. Yeah, and I feel like as an industry, as I say, we kind of settled on transnational education as a, as a catch-all term, but it describes everything from branch campuses to joint degrees and twinning programs to online delivery. And so the answer, the short answer, is that there's really no difference between mm. online delivery and the way that we're talking about it now and, and that broad umbrella of transnational education. But I think what is different is that we can anticipate that for all the reasons that we're discussing today, that online delivery, distributed learning, remote learning, whatever you want to call it, will have a much bigger footprint within that portfolio of transnational education programming than has been the case in the past. Stephanie, do you still use the term transnational education? We do. And, and I'd like to give you just one quick example uh, that's really relevant at this time. So with the University of Arizona's online and dual degree options through those micro campus locations around the world, we know that students want to come to the U.S. You know, they might love that dual degree partnership with their home institution. They might love studying online, but they really love the idea of studying in the U.S. They want that, that experience, right? So we created a program called Study Arizona study on our main campus in Tucson, paying the price for tuition that they pay in their, their home program, whether it's the online mm. option or the dual degree programs. You know, we help them with their visas and get them set up living on campus or in Tucson. 
because they really want that experience. So this fall, we have a large cohort of students from our partner in uh, Peru, UPC, where those students are on campus right now studying, getting really immersed in the, in the university's life. And of course, then they'll go back home at the end of the semester, but they will have had that experience. A few of those students, I think, may stay on for one more semester because they want to qualify for OPT at some point. But yeah, this is definitely something where I think it doesn't have to be one or the other. Students can study at home through a dual degree or online and still have the opportunity to come to the United States and study for maybe one semester if they choose to. For those unfamiliar with OPT? Oh, optional practical training. So this is when students want to have the ability to stay on in the United States and work for a while after they've completed their degree. Great. Thanks for that. Well, I think we could probably dedicate a whole episode to what is transnational education and then still disagree at the end of that episode. <laughs> uh, it's clear that it's, um, you know, the, I guess the borders between different delivery models are really blurring, uh, which probably is a good thing because it just creates more opportunities for more types of students in more countries and so on. So that's quite positive, I'd say. So, well, Craig and Stephanie, thank you for your always valuable and very inspiring contributions. I guess we agree that the new normal is indeed not the normal we knew, which I believe is a good thing as it reflects progress and evolution in an ever-evolving industry. I'd like to also thank our audience for spending 30 minutes of your valuable time with us. And for feedback and questions, you can email us at podcast at ISAF.com. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit ISAFmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at ISAF.com. <laughs>